we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are in the second sermon of the series, and so if you're just jumping on, thank you for joining us. You can find the first message on our website, but if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage today, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. I'll be reading from the ESV, and uh, it also go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Amen. Well, a a seminary professor wrote about a home Bible study he was uh, going through. uh, And they were studying the gospel of Mark. And and long ago, uh, as they were going over this passage in particular, uh, after reading it, he kind of did the small group thing where he asked everybody, uh, what do you think it means? What are your thoughts on the passage? And so the first person in the group said, well, what this passage means to me is that everyone needs to be baptized and that it has to be immersion. Right? You got to like, get fully dunked in the Jordan River, right? And then a second person responded, you know what? I think what this passage really means is that everyone needs to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, And then a third person comes up. He's like, you know what? I think I have a better answer. I think that that what this passage is really saying is that if we want to meet God, like the true and living God, we have to go out into nature. We have to go out into the wilderness and meet God there, right? Three interpretations, three responses in his small group. Unfortunately, everyone missed the point. Everyone missed the point. The truth is, Mark is not talking about us. And he's not talking about what we should be doing. If you read the passage and you read the gospel of Mark, his emphasis is clearly on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is greater than John the Baptist, the one whose gospel ministry is beginning here in this moment, in these two great events with baptism and trials in the wilderness. You see, church, our problem is that we make even the stories about Jesus, we try to make it about us, do we not? Even when the gospel writers are clearly telling us about who he is and what he has done, we want to know who am I and what do I need to do? We all have this tendency to overlook the writings about Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because we assume we know it well enough, don't we? If you've grown up in the church, you're like, I know Jesus. He is fully God and he's fully man and he loved us so much. He died on the cross and on the third day he rose again. And if I believe, I'm forgiven and I have eternal life. And and we think that that's Jesus in a nutshell. And by the way, he can walk on water and raise the dead and a couple of things. And and we feel like we've, we've got him figured out. And so we gloss over verses and passages such as this. And we go looking for our own little interpretations, our own little commands, and our own little practical applications that seem inspiring to us. 
instead of reflecting upon who Jesus truly is, instead of resting and reveling upon what he has accomplished, all that he has done as the Christ, as the Messiah, you and I, we find ways to manipulate the text and make it about us. But I want to encourage you today, if you have come to church and you want to start off this new year and you know you need Jesus to change your life, if you have come to church today looking for renewal and strength and conviction in the, in the gospel, Mark is telling us and he's encouraging us today, there is a path. And what we need to do is not make the text about us. What we need to do is we need to go to him. We have to investigate who Jesus is and what he's done. We have to focus on Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah. We need to worship him. And by doing so, we have a hope for transformation, renewal, and conviction. Because it is only through our beholding Jesus can we become like him. Let me say that again. As we study the Gospels, we will learn that it is only through beholding Jesus, seeing him, loving him, adoring him, worshiping him, can you and I become like him. The outline for today's message is simple. We're going to follow the text. We're going to follow the text and we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus and his journey into the wilderness. That's why the, the title of today's sermon is simply The Baptism and the Wilderness. And we're going to look at these two major events in Jesus' life and we're going to simply ask, why? Why did Jesus go through these things? Why did he experience these things? And what is the significance? What did he accomplish? What does that, what does that mean for us in our relationship with him and our relationship with God, right? So let's start with the baptism of Jesus. This is how Mark introduces us to Jesus in his gospel. Last week, we studied a lot about uh, John the Baptist and his ministry and his message. We did a little bit of an intro on the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but we didn't meet Jesus in the text yet. This is how Mark introduces us to Jesus in the gospel. He's not like John. John who introduced us to Jesus as the word of God who existed before even the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world. Jesus was the word. That's John. If you read Matthew and Luke, we are introduced to Jesus as an infant, as a baby born of a virgin. Mark, he doesn't go there. He simply says, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Very plain introduction. Now, if you read Matthew's accounts, you'll see that when John the Baptist met Jesus, and Jesus was next in line waiting, and he's ready to be baptized, and John sees him, and he kind of has a meltdown. And what John the Baptist says to Jesus is, no, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John is telling Jesus, we've got it backwards. This is wrong, right? I can't be the baptizer of you, Jesus, the son of God. You need to baptize me. But in the very next verse, Jesus answered him, let it be so. Just let it be, John. Just do it. Go along with it. For it, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We need to fulfill righteousness. It is fitting. It is appropriate. That's what Matthew tells us in chapter 3. Now, we have to ask, why did John not want to baptize Jesus? 
Because we learned last week that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, okay? John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. So all of Israel, all of Judea is coming to John because they know that they are sinners. They are covenant breakers. The favor of God has not been upon them, their households, their nation, and so they are repenting, saying, God, have mercy upon us. We are being baptized Longing for forgiveness, we are coming to God in repentance. That was John's baptism. But how do you baptize someone who has not sinned? How do you baptize someone who has no need for forgiveness? Why would John do that? It makes no sense to him. And so John understands this. He sees Jesus as the the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus as the one who is so great, so majestic, so worthy, he's not even, he shouldn't even tie the leather strap on his sandals. He sees that. And so he says, no, I cannot baptize you. You should baptize me. But here we see the uniqueness of Jesus' baptism. You see, Jesus' baptism is unlike John's baptism. It's unlike our baptism, okay, When we got baptized as Christians in faith, we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our our baptism is one of faith that looks, looks to Christ and the cross, and we believe that through his bloodshed work, we can be forgiven. John the Baptist's baptism was one of repentance, but the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus was not just one of forgiveness. It was actually a sign of judgment. Let me say that again. The baptism of Jesus was not all about him receiving forgiveness or needing forgiveness. Rather, it was about being a sign of judgment. Let me explain. Do you remember the story of James and John, the disciples of Jesus? And uh, in Mark chapter 10, there's this story where these two brothers, they go up to Jesus, they kind of like corner him, and they ask him a question. And they ask Jesus, right? In your kingdom, can we sit at your right and at your left, right? Can we sit at your right and at your left? And when all of the other disciples overheard that, they were furious. They were furious. They were like, what, you guys think you're better than us? They were bitter. They were salty. Or some of them were like, man, I should have thought of that, right? You called, it was like calling shotgun in the kingdom of God. They just got like the best two seats. A very controversial or tense moment. Said, Jesus, can we be at your right and at your left? Do you know how Jesus responds? He responds with both a rebuke and a question. This is what Jesus says. You do not know what you are asking. James and John, I know you, you think you're just asking for like the glory seat. You want to be close to me. You want to, you want to receive the praise and the power with me. But you guys do not know what you are asking when you ask about sitting at my right and at my left. Then he asked this famous question, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? For so many of us, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Like, I guess I know what you're talking about. James and John, they say yes, but the obvious answer is no. They say, yes, we can drink the cup. Yes, we can join you in your baptism, but but the obvious answer is no. Why? Because Jesus was talking about his death. He was talking about his suffering on the cross. And he described it as him drinking the cup of God's wrath. He described it as his baptism, a baptism that is unique, a baptism that is set apart. 
That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. And when we understand that Jesus' baptism was one of judgment that secures our forgiveness, okay? Not because Jesus needed forgiveness, not because Jesus had anything to repent of, but rather his baptism was a sign of judgment for forgiveness. Then we understand why Jesus was like, John, you have to baptize me. John the Baptist is like, no, I shouldn't be doing this. This is unnecessary. John, Jesus says, no, it is necessary. For the fulfillment of righteousness, it is necessary. You see, John didn't think it was necessary because Jesus was sinless. But Jesus says it is necessary because you guys are sinful. Because Jesus' baptism was the inauguration of Jesus' mission. Remember, Mark, how does he start? He doesn't start with baby Jesus. He doesn't start with the second person of the Trinity, the word of God before the creation of the world. No, he starts with Jesus, the man, right around his 30s, and he is starting his mission. Well, what was the mission of Jesus? It was to seek and save the lost. What was the mission of Jesus? Not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that ministry, that mission was starting now in Mark 1, verses 9 to 13, with his baptism and with his journey in the wilderness. His ministry, his mission is starting. And as he entered into the waters of the Jordan, the sinless one, the righteous one, he was identifying with us, okay? He's identifying with all of those sinners who came from Jerusalem and Judea into the Jordan River. And Jesus was identifying with each and every one of them. And Jesus is telling us that in his baptism, he will take our place. In his baptism, I will become a sinner. In his baptism, right? Sorry, I have my personal pronouns mixed up right now. Um, In his baptism, he will become like a covenant breaker like a rebel. And in doing so, he will bear the judgment of God so that Israel would be spared, so that you and I could be spared. You see, the apostles Peter and Paul, they picked up on this as well. There's a lot of confusing passages on baptism in the New Testament. And uh, Peter and Paul, they have two of them. Paul starts talking about baptism, and then he associates it with Moses and the Red Sea. And this Exodus story of when Israel escaped from slavery under Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And then as the Egyptians were following them, what happened to the Egyptians? God calls the Red Sea to collapse and fall down and drown them. And Paul says that that was a baptism. But the thing about that baptism is that yes, there was salvation. Yes, Israel was saved and spared. But how? It was through judgment. You see that? It was salvation through judgment. Not a salvation because God was just so benevolent. but benevolent. Not a salvation because God was just so kind and, and merciful and loving. God saved his people by judging Egypt. Peter makes a similar association. And he talks about Noah. And how, how Noah and his people and his, his family, that they experienced a baptism through the flood. Once again, Noah and his family, they were spared. They were saved. They received the mercy and favor of God. But only after God judged an unrighteous 
in a sinful and rebellious world with the flood. Do you see that? That's the connection that we see here. That God saved his people by judging the unrighteous. Church, this is the baptism of Jesus. That through the waters of the Jordan, he could bear our judgment. That through the waters of of Jordan, that we could be saved. And just as Jesus didn't deserve to die a sinner's death on the cross, he doesn't. That was unnecessary. That was unjust for him to be condemned as a prisoner. It was equally unnecessary for Jesus to be baptized. He had no sin, nothing to repent for, no no need. And yet, Jesus says, it is necessary to fulfill righteousness. Why? Because that's what it took for you and I to be redeemed. That's what it took for you and I to be saved and pardoned and forgiven of our sin. He says, I had to be baptized in the same way I had to go to the cross so that I can give my life as a ransom for all of you, for many. And so this is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And to confirm Jesus and his mission, three things happened. Right after Jesus is baptized, we see that the heavens were torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and the father declared, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. Three epic, beautiful events happened right after the baptism. I'm just gonna go over them very quickly. First question, why? Did Mark say the heavens were torn open? Did you know he's the only author of the gospels who has the story that says the heavens were torn open? Matthew just simply says the heavens opened up, right? Like the heavens parted and you can imagine that. We imagine like the clouds parting, the sky is blue, light beams down and, and then the Holy Spirit like a dove comes descending. That's the scene we have. But Mark says, no, it was not pretty like that. It was violent. The heavens were torn open. There's only one other time in his entire gospel that he uses the word torn, and that's at the end of Jesus' ministry. After Jesus dies on the cross, we have the story of the curtain, the veil in the temple that divides the holy place from the holy of holies, and it was torn from top to bottom, telling all of Israel and the whole world that, that by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, you and I, we have access into the holy throne room of God. It is a significant thing if you stop and rest upon that fact. That in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the heavens were torn open. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, the curtains were torn down, all so that God could draw near to us, all so that God could make us his own. And just as the tearing open of the heavens marked a new revelation of God, a new work of God, the next thing that happened points to a new creation, a new beginning, because the Spirit was descending upon Jesus as a dove. The Holy Spirit came down and anointed Jesus. You see, if you remember King David, King David was the greatest king of Israel, and yet they were longing for a greater king one who would come from David's bloodline to rescue, redeem, and establish Israel again. And before David became a king, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, and Samuel put oil over his head, and it ran down his face. Before he became a king, he was anointed 
Jesus was anointed with something even greater than oil. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit anointed him, it was a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king who has come to rescue his people. Jesus is the greater David. And yet there's a second thing that we learn about this Holy Spirit who descends upon Jesus as a dove. Do you remember the first verse of Mark's gospel? It's right there. Just look a couple of verses earlier. Mark writes, in the beginning, or the beginning of the good news, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you read those introductory words, what does that make you think about? What other book in the Bible are you thinking of when you hear those words, in the beginning, or the beginning? And we all should think about Genesis. That's not an accident. That was part of Mark's design, his plan. And, and, and all throughout the book of Mark, you'll see connections between Jesus and his ministry, Jesus and his work, Jesus and his person, and Genesis and the creative work that God did in the creation of the world, the, the, the garden, Adam and Eve. There's all of these amazing connections that Mark makes between Genesis and Jesus. And so Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 tells us that the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now you and I, what, what mental picture do we get when we think of hovering, right? And we think of like something kind of sci-fi, right? Just something kind of floating, floating over the waters, right? Or maybe if you're like Back to the Future, uh, Marty McFly, he had a hoverboard, and so he's just like floating on a skateboard, something along those lines. That's how, that's how I always imagine it. But you know the Jews, to the Jews, that word hovering meant something else. In the Talmud, which is like their, their interpretation of the Pentateuch, uh, the Talmud, they use this picture of a dove fluttering over the waters. That's what it meant to them. That when the Spirit of God is hovering, they were thinking of a dove flying and, and fluttering over the waters. That was their picture. That was in the mind of the Jew. So when they hear and they see that, that the Spirit of God, like a dove, descended upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the point is clear. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit were together at creation in Genesis 1, the triune God is here. He is here in Mark 1 at Jesus' baptism for the inauguration of a new age. A new creation is beginning. And it's centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see that? That is the connection. Genesis 1, creation of the world. Right? Mark 1, it is time for a new creation in Christ. And finally, we have the Father's warm and affectionate declaration to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Other gospel writers tell us, say, it's like an announcement. This is my beloved son. But in Mark, the declaration goes right to Jesus. It is the Father's declaration of love and affection to his son. Church, we must always remember, we must always remember the great and perfect love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have for each other. Did you guys know that um, there are certain like liberal theologians who reject this doctrine called substitutionary atonement? Substitutionary atonement is simply this, this, this doctrine. It's Jesus took your place on the cross. 
The death that you and I deserve, Jesus died it on the cross. The judgment that was reserved for us, the wrath, the cup of wrath that Jesus says he's drinking, right? That's what Jesus did on the cross. And liberal theologians say, that is absurd. They reject that doctrine because they believe it's cosmic child abuse. They say, what kind of father would punish his son? What kind of father would allow his son to experience his wrath? That's not love. That's not love. So they reject it. We say, no, you're wrong. The father loved the son, and the father did not spare his son. We must never take for granted the fact that the father loved his beloved son with a righteous, a zealous, a perfect, but also sacrificial love. We have to take that in. We have to remember we cannot forsake it and take it for granted. And it is because the father had such an amazing love for his son, a love that was so great and so perfect that when you think about the cross, when we think about the sacrifice, it truly is wondrous and unspeakable. You see, there are so many times when we think of sacrifice and we think of God, we thank Jesus for his sacrifice, do we not? We say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for shedding your blood. And, and, and those are the songs that we sing and they are beautiful gospel truths. We too often forget the sacrifice that the Father made. All that the Father surrendered, all that the Father gave up when he gave up his one and only beloved son. Parents, you love your children. Think of the love, the scandalous, the zealous, the almost borderline idolatrous love that you have for your children. How costly would it be for you to give them up? And the father with a more zealous, with a richer, a deeper, a more beautiful, profound love he asked for his perfect son. He did not spare him so that you and I can be saved and redeemed. How great, how deep the father's love is for us. Right after his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Let's go into our text again. Mark chapter one, verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The other gospel writers tell us also that Jesus fasted for 40 days during this time. And he was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Once again, in Mark's just abrupt, immediate fashion, we see that Jesus is sent out into the wilderness for 40 days. You see, typically if somebody is anointed as the king, if somebody is recognized as the son of God, there should be a celebration, there should be worship, there should be a party. John should have organized something for his savior. That is not the case. As soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as Jesus is declared the son of God with whom the father is well pleased, Jesus is sent out, driven out by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And in this passage, Satan means adversary. See, the devil means deceiver. Satan means adversary. Jesus was going to, to do battle, spiritual battle with Satan in the wilderness, 40 days. 
Now, when you and I, when we think of the wilderness, we have such a, like, uh, a wrong perspective, at least, at least I do. Because when I grew up, I would go to like a wilderness camp and there would be like archery and horses to ride and rope swings and we'd swim in the lake and it would be very like, like nature-esque, right? The wilderness, REI type of like, that, that, that was like the image, right? And if you haven't been there, you've at least seen it on TV. There's like Bear grills, Man versus Wild, all the, all the National Geographic stuff. And so we think the wilderness is cool. We camp in the wilderness. We want to try and like explore and adventure in the wilderness. But in the Bible, the wilderness is not cool. It is not a forest. It is not lush. It is not teeming with life. In the Bible, the wilderness is a desert. It looks more like Palmdale and Riverside, right? Sorry, Riverside and Palmdale people, right? It's a barren place of desolation and danger. It was a place of wandering and a place of trial. It was a place of uncertainty and a place of fear. And Israel knew this. That was a reality. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, hoping to get into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. The wilderness was not their home. That's not where they wanted to be. They were grumbling. They complained. The wilderness got so bad to Israel that they thought about going back to Egypt. Over and over again, they said, it's so bad out here. I know we have our freedom, but we are in the wilderness. I would rather go back to slavery in Egypt. At least we wouldn't die of hunger and thirst. That's how bad the wilderness was. They would choose slavery over freedom, all because of the wilderness. But Israel also knew that there was something special about the wilderness, because that's where God meets his people. Where did Moses meet God as a burning bush, it was in the wilderness. Where did Jacob get his dreams and, and wrestle with the angel of God? It was, it was in the wilderness. Where did Israel see God provide for them day in, day out, lead them as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? It was through the wilderness. Why is the wilderness so important to Israel? Why is it so important to God? Because it is the place where you cannot stay alive without him. Okay. The wilderness is the place where Israel could not survive on their own. On their own, they're ready to go back to slavery. It's the place where all of the wells ran dry. They ran out of water. They thought they were going to die of thirst. So you know what God did? Jehovah Jireh, their provider, God caused water to flow from a rock because all of their wells ran dry. And as much as they tried to provide for themselves, as much food as they might've tried to find or scrap together or even grow, they could not grow enough. And so God had to provide for them manna every day. Literally, God gave them their daily bread. But it's also the place where the bread molds after a day. Where some of the Israelites, they said, why am I just collecting one one, one loaf of bread a day, why can't I just like pack it up for the week? And some of them tried, and the next day it would grow moldy. Why? Because they're in the wilderness. And God wants to teach Israel. He wants to teach his people in the wilderness, you cannot survive without me. All the bread goes bad. All the wells run dry. But if you follow me, I will lead you every day as a pillar of fire and a cloud, and you will never thirst, and you will never hunger. 
but it is a place where you learn to trust in God. You learn to follow him. And so when Jesus, right after his baptism, goes into the wilderness, the people know something special is about to happen. Something big is about to go down because when God sends people in the wilderness or when people go in the wilderness, that, 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 that's the meeting point. Remember how I told you that Mark is full of parallels between his book and the ministry of Jesus and Genesis and the origins of the world. Well, if you remember the Garden of Eden, there are connections there as well. Well, God created all the animals. God created Adam and all of the animals in the Garden of Eden. Did you know they were tame? And God actually had them all come up to Adam and they're all just waiting and Adam names them. He's like squirrel, rabbit, dog. Even the lions come and the gorillas come. I'm thinking of other wild animals, um, the alligators. And they all come. And they're docile. They're domesticated. They are not wild. They are all obedient. Because before, before sin, before the fall, Adam was reigning and ruling over the world as a vice regent for God in God's place. He was a steward. And all of creation was subject to him. So all the animals, they came and they got their name from him. And when you name someone, you name something that, that demonstrates your authority. They were peaceful. But what about Jesus? Jesus is not in the garden. He's in the wilderness. And the beasts are wild. And Mark wants you to know that. Once again, very unique. Matthew doesn't talk about the wild beasts. He talks about the fasting. He talks about all the trials and temptation. But Mark wants you to know the beasts are wild in the wilderness. Jesus has an adversary. He's going head to head with Satan. And yet we are going to see Jesus prevail. You see, in the garden, Adam had every reason to prevail. He had no danger. He had all of the fruit, fruit, all of the protection, all of the animals. They're just like his cuddle buddies and they're just obedient, doing whatever he says. He has a perfect partner and a helper in Eve. He has every reason to resist Satan's temptations. And yet at the first one, he and Eve fold. Jesus Christ goes into the desolate wilderness, a place where he cannot survive apart from the grace and provision of God, a place where even the animals are against him, let alone Satan, his adversary and the great deceiver. And yet we are going to see Jesus prevail as the greater Adam. Now, Matthew, Matthew's gospel tells us about Satan's temptations. You remember them? Do you remember the first one? Right? Jesus is fasting in the wilderness. And so Satan says, hey, if you really are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Okay? Jesus could have done that with a snap of his fingers. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, a, of, a, of God. And then Satan's like, well, you know what? You're so tired. You're so weary. Why don't you just jump off the cliff if you are the son of God and have angels catch you? And you know what? Jesus could have done that as well. He would have called Gabriel or Michael or whatever it might be. And he'd be like, angels, catch me. He totally could have done that. Easy, right? Cakewalk for Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity. But he doesn't. Why? And you see, growing up, I always thought, yeah, it was because the... Temptations weren't difficult. And you know what? If you think they're so easy 
and you think Jesus resisting those temptations are so nonchalant, that doesn't leave us in awe, does it? It doesn't leave us impressed that he has now fought off Satan as his adversary. Derek Thomas, a theologian that I very much love, he wrote this. He said, it's not because the temptations were difficult that, that made you know, his trials in the wilderness so astounding. It's not even that they were so easy. It's, it's because there's something else going on. He says, it's that Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do something for himself rather than for others. To abandon just for a moment his mission, his role as the mediator, as the suffering servant, to just do one small thing using his divine power for his own gain, for his own comfort. That was the temptation. You're hungry, use the power of God, the spirit of God to feed yourself, right? Use angels for yourself, but Jesus resisted. And every moment he said, no, why? Because the food of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the work of Jesus was to do the will of the Father. That's what gave him delight. That's what satisfied his soul. The mission of Jesus was to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many, not to win the acclaim of man not to win a popularity contest and win worship for himself. And Jesus resisted. He was resolute. Now, application. How do you and I benefit from this? The fact that Jesus was baptized and experienced the judgment of God so that you and I can be forgiven. That Jesus went out into the wilderness defeating Satan. One thing that it does is it gives us all an incredible resource for suffering, okay? Incredible, incredible resource for suffering. Think of the last time you poured your heart out to somebody. It could have been something simple as, you know, I'm struggling, I'm stressed with school, or, um, you know, I'm really scared because I'm unemployed and I need to make some money and support myself, my family, and my parents, or maybe it's heavier, and you're scared because, you or a loved one is sick with a terminal illness, or you're scared because you are struggling with depression and these kinds of deep pains. And you share that with someone. Maybe it's your spouse, a friend, a family member, a parent, somebody in your small group. But imagine this. Imagine if like, oh, unemployed, you know, you should try, you know, monster.com and a career builder and, uh, you know, it, let me look at your resume. I'll, I'll, you know, I have a pretty good one. I've never been unemployed, so maybe I can help you with that. And, and you're like, that does no help for me. Or maybe you're talking about somebody about, about a, a, a hurt relationship or your loneliness and your fears and anxieties as you're growing older. And, and someone's like, you know what? You should try, um, you know, Coffee Meets Bagel. It's this new app. You should, tr- you know, I have a couple friends that got married through it. eHarmony works as well because they do personality assessments. And they're just trying to give you advice and fix you when in the, in the realities you're hurting and you're suffering and you're scared and you're not looking for a to-do list or, 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 or like six steps on how to fix my problems. That does no good for you, does it? But what happens if you meet somebody who says, yeah, I, um, I experienced that as well, and it's terrifying. I lost my parents to cancer, 
I didn't know what I was going to do. I went through bankruptcy, and I didn't know how I was going to provide for my kids. And in a moment, you're not getting advice. You're receiving empathy. And how meaningful was that to you? That's life-giving, is it not? It is such an anchor for your soul. It's such a resource in light of your suffering. Now imagine this. That person who has just extended to you empathy and love and comfort and warmth, they say, not only have I experienced what you've experienced, you know what? I'm going to walk with you all the way through. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. I'm going to be with you. I'll take you to the doctor's office. I'll help you get back on your feet. Whatever you need, I will be with you because I know how hard it was. I know how hard it was for me. That's next level hope, is it not? That is a resource for suffering that we would all love to have, that we would all crave to have. Do I, church, I want to tell you this. Jesus Christ, by being the one who was baptized for us, by being the one who went into the wilderness for us, he is the one who offers you that kind of empathy, that kind of comfort, that kind of strength in light of your suffering. And here's the thing. Jesus Christ has not only suffered in a way where he can empathize with you, he has suffered more intensely than you and I ever will. His suffering, his pain, his anguish, his desolation was infinitely greater than ours. And so he is capable. He is suitable. He is able to be our comforter. Tim Keller makes this observation. He says this, did you know there is no religion, no other religion in the world that says that God has been through anything more intensely than you have, except Christianity, okay? Christianity doesn't just say that God gets you. Christianity says God has suffered more than you, more than you and I ever will. Christianity says, you know what about, you know what, you know who our God is? Our God is a God who has wounds. There is no other God who has wounds. Not Zeus, not Baal, not Buddha, Muhammad. None of them have wounds. And yet Jesus does. He has his nail-pierced hands, nail-pierced feet. He wore the crown of thorns, spear in his side, He drank the cup of wrath that you and I, we all should have drank it from. He experienced a baptism that we were spared from. Our God has wounds. Jesus went through the wilderness. He went through the wilderness so that when you and I go through our seasons of wilderness, he can go through it with you as well. He knows it. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us as well. We have this great high priest who can mediate. He is the God-man. He can be with you. He can save you. He can empathize with you because he has been through all of our pains and all of our anguish. And I want you today to hope in him. Would you consider him? Whatever wilderness you might be in right now, it could be your midlife crisis. 
It could be your quarter-life crisis for the young millennials. I think that all the parents are going to be like, what are you guys talking about? There is real. Quarter-life crisis is real. And I just want to share this for anyone who's going through a crisis season in life. I believe God in his grace, God in his sovereignty is leading you through so that you can see that those wells are running dry and that bread is going moldy. Parents, oftentimes your midlife crisis comes as your kids are getting older and you realize they were poor idols to worship all throughout their adolescence. They don't even love me back. Right. So many of us go through crisis when we do experience success. You get the school, you get in the school that you want, you get the job that you want, you get the relationship that you want, and then you look at yourself and you feel so empty and so unfulfilled. That leads us to a crisis. Those are dry wells, moldy bread. Jesus says, come to me. You'll never thirst again. Come to me, eat my bread. You will never hunger again. Would you consider him? Let's go to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for even using something as terrifying as the wilderness, something as personal as our own struggles and crises to bring us back to you, to lead us to the cross, to produce in, again, in us again hope, not in ourselves, but hope in the Savior. Father, Right now, we want to remember your sacrifice. The sacrifice that you took on as you sent your only beloved and begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. We did not deserve that. We can never repay such a great sacrifice. But Lord, all we can do is to trust you, to worship you, and thank you. And we declare that you alone are worthy. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would help us to see Christ in this new season of, of 2018. Help us to seek the real Jesus, your son, our savior. And as we behold him, help us to become more like him. In Jesus' name we pray.